uh, taking seven, verse 17 through the beginning of chapter 3. We'll, we'll uh, look at that next week. Um, trying to be mindful also of Dave having the time uh, together to lead us in communion. So this morning we're continuing our series. And uh, in the first chapter, we heard Paul write to this baby church about the impact and influence of the gospel, if you remember that. And then last week, we heard Paul defending his motives for preaching that good message. One of the things we reflected on was that Paul pointed to his sincerity, um, one of the proofs of his sincerity in the fact that he was willing to work hard and he was willing to even suffer for their sake and the sake of of the gospel, and that's something that becomes clearly and has become for Paul and this young church a shared experience. So Paul will again turn to the suffering and persecution of this young church. So just read chapter 2 of the first book or letter to the Thessalonian church, verses 13 through 16, and we also thank God continually Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they they always heap up their sins to the limit The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Just as a quick side note there, we always have to keep in mind that Paul in no way is trying to foster any anti-Jew sentiment, right? He is a Jew. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's talking about a specific group of Jews that were in opposition to the gospel. Um, Paul even said at one point, right, that he was willing, if, if, it was, if it was possible, he would forfeit his own salvation if it wasn't for the salvation of his own people. That's always amazing to me. Uh, but there are these that are opposing, and Paul says that um, they're heaping up their sins. You get this idea almost like they're just piling their sins high, and the wrath of God has come on them at last. It, it speak, Paul speaks of this wrath as a present condition, kind of in the same way you remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he, and he says, he talks about salvation, right? That we have John 3.16, but we also have him talk about those who do not believe on the Son. Those who believe in the Son will not perish but have eternal life. Those who do not believe in the Son will be condemned. And in fact, Jesus says they stand condemned already. That's already their present condition. Paul brings to remembrance to this church 
again, how they received and accepted the gospel message. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 5, he said that the gospel did not come simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And now Paul reiterates that line of thinking, showing us that not all words are created equal. There are many words in the world. <laughs> it seems like more so than ever. We just are inundated with words and messages and blogs <laughs> and opinions and social media. Words, words. And there's many, many words that convey human reasoning. And there's many words that convey philosophy and religion. But always transcending them is the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, these are unique because they are not the word of men. And it seems that, you know, again, by the power of the Spirit, what Paul is saying is that they were able to receive it as such. It's not of the word of men. It's the word of God. It's of divine origin. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture, everything that we have here in our Bible, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's of divine origin. 2 Peter 2.20-21 speaks of the words of the Scripture's prophets. Not, that, not as speaking from their own interpretation, Peter says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So still men and women carry this message along. The message of the scripture, the message of the gospel itself of Jesus Christ. But it's not a message that is manufactured by humanity. It's the word of God. We're simply couriers of the message. So when you share the gospel of Jesus, you're not sharing something that is manufactured by man. You're a courier sharing the very word and message of God. We have the high privilege, really, of having the message of the gospel and the complete word of God so readily available to us. There are many in the world that don't even have that privilege. And as we continue to hear the clamor of many voices, and the clamor of those voices may be without, it may be within Christian circles, it may be within myself, right? The clamor of voices. Don't get too worried. <laughs> the voices ringing around in my head. But we must always weigh these voices with the inspired and infallible message of God. So when we hear voices that speak of the good news of Jesus as something other than God's free gift of salvation, right? Amen? Free gift of salvation. To who? To anyone who would believe. Anyone. 
And when they receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is God's gift to reconciliation and eternal life. When we hear that we, when we hear the gospel being something other than that, than a free gift available to anyone, grace, faith, Christ alone, then we have to weigh it against the reality of what we're told in the writings of the scripture. When we hear voices, and even supposed Christian voices, touting what amounts to prejudice, or discrimination, or, or hateful and violent retaliation of what is perceived as enemies. And I caution you how easy this is to happen in a culture. We must weigh it against the words and the example of Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? So whatever the voices are, political voices, secular voices, supposed Christian voices, we have to say, what it does the word of God say? What does the example and teaching of Jesus Christ say? Jesus was willing to lay down his life so that me, I, so that I, even when I was a sinner, even when I was his enemy, that I could come to know him. Being of divine origin, this word contains the power to transform us like nothing else can. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Scripture also tells us, right, that, that, that Scripture has to be discerned by the Holy Spirit of God. It has to be the Word of God understood through the Spirit of God because the unspiritual man doesn't understand spiritual things. So it's, this is when the Word is received with power and guidance and the influence that only comes through the Holy Spirit. And it's this power that the Apostle says to these believers that is at work this, you get this idea of this continuing working out. It's at work in their lives, transforming their lives from who they are to who God is making them to be. Is it still at work in you? Have you come to a point maybe in your Christian life where you're like, well, I pretty much got it, and you've grown cold to the mystery of the Word of God, of entering into it with fresh eyes and the leading of a very real and alive Holy Spirit of God. It's just as alive and active today, folks, as it was then. Not all words are created equal. But next, Paul moves on to say that accepting this word has also brought a new dynamic into their lives. And it's this reality that accepting the word of God, the gospel of God, will not always be an easy road within society. As he again turns to the plight of these new believers being persecuted for their following of Jesus. Persecution is defined as the subjecting of a race or group of people to cruel and unfair treatment 
because of their ethnic origin or religious beliefs. So at worst, persecution, Christian persecution, Christians aren't the only people that are persecuted, but Christian persecution has led to many dying, torture and death. It still happens today. Persecution can also include discrimination, the withholding of rights, harassment, bullying, a refusal to associate with you, a refusal to give you the help you need, insults, slander, opposition, cruelty, kind of any unjust treatment of any sort because of who you are in Christ. Now, now when it comes to persecution, I think that there, there needs for us to be a little bit of perspective um, there's an expression that some people use, and it's most often, often ironically uh, aimed toward what we might call first world problems. First world problems. And, and it's when we say, and maybe you've heard this, the struggle is real, right? The struggle is real. You're uh, that poor guy. So the struggle is real. So your Netflix show is supposed to be 43 minutes long. But it takes you two hours and 20 minutes because you have Frontier as your internet provider. Amen? The struggle is real. I don't have Frontier. <laughs> so. <clears throat> so that's the idea, right? The struggle's real, these first world problems. I just want to watch my show without the little circle, you know. The hardship. And sometimes I feel like as American Christians, we act this way toward Christian persecution. Um, with every slight and disagreement, we, we cry out, the struggle is real. But I think we need to be careful to distinguish between actual suffering for Jesus versus people simply disagreeing with us. Or even worse, us getting an appropriate backlash because we've conformed to our culture in responding with aggression and being overly opinionated and brash. So listen, if, if I could say this, and I'm not giving you my opinion on this, but... If someone disagrees with you on Facebook about whether or not we should build a border wall, you're not being persecuted for your faith. And sometimes Christians, even without realizing it within all this mess and all these words and conforming to our culture, become not the persecuted, but the persecuting. Too often we forget in this increasingly polarized culture in which everything seems fair game to argue out with, with belligerence that as Christians we're to be those within our culture who are, as 1 Peter 3.15 instructs, always ready to give the reason for the hope we have in Jesus. Is that your message? And we're to do that, we're told by Peter, 
with all gentleness and respect. That's countercultural, folks. With all gentleness and respect. So let's just be careful. A little caution there, right? We say the struggle is real. Well, there are many that the struggle, for many that the struggle is real. And there are many Christians in the world that their, their plight still reflects the plight of many Christians in the first century church. A few numbers. This is through a ministry called Open Door. And this was just last year. Um, these, these are current. Um, 245 million Christians. 245 million. Let that think it, it sink in for a second. 245 million Christians live in areas and countries that experience what they call high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Christ. According to their um, research, over 4,000 Christians during that time period, that year, uh, October of 17, November of 18, during that time, over 4,000 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. Over 2,600 were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and, and imprisoned. Over 1,200 Christians uh, or churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 11 countries scored on the extreme level for their persecution of Christians. And I thought this was interesting. Just five years ago, there was only one, North Korea. And now they estimate there's 11 Every month, 105 churches were attacked, burned, or vandalized on average. On average, every day, 11 Christians are killed for their faith. One in nine Christian world, Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. One out of 21 in South America. One out of six in Africa. One out of three in Asia. We need to pray for our persecuted family. It's our family. Every one of those numbers represent real people. Real brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters. Husbands losing wives. Wives losing husbands. Parents losing children. Friends and comrades. Here in America, I'm reminded of Hebrews 12, 4, where the writer of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. We haven't, but many have. I wonder if we would be willing to. I don't welcome it. I'm not asking for it. But would we be, would we be willing to? And with that perspective, it is also true that following Jesus within every culture will lead to some pushback. Every culture. I just think that's important perspective to have. 
The Lord is mindful of every insult, every rejection that is truly for his name's sake. It always strikes me in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, after the Beatitudes or at the end of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you when people insult you. That he even goes there, he's like, listen, even an insult I know about and I care about. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and then slander you, falsely, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So listen, kids, and I remember this. I was a kid a long, long, long time ago, right? But I remember that feeling of just loving Jesus and, and being so committed to Jesus and, 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 and wanting to, to share him and, and not wanting to participate in things that didn't honor him. And because of that, you get teased. That's real. You know what, kids? Jesus knows it. He cares about it. And he calls you blessed because of it. college student lives unashamedly for Jesus and, and other students ask with indignation, you don't really believe that, do you? And you quietly say, yes, I do. But you know that that will leave you in their eyes looking like a fool. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. Jesus calls you blessed. When you're simply trying to live a life in accordance with what God says is good and right and just and fair, and, and, and we live in a culture that is so counter to these things that we're considered wrong to do right, even when you're trying to do that with all grace and humility and gentleness and respect, Jesus knows, Jesus sees it, Jesus cares, and he calls you blessed. When you're made to feel that you're not a team player at work because you're not doing this and that, maybe fudging the numbers and, or whatever, because of your conviction before the Lord, Jesus sees it, he knows, he cares, and he calls you blessed. Many religions teach that if you're proper, properly fulfilling the religious duties that they call you to, you'll receive a blessing in this life. And if you're not, your life will be hard. So if your life is hard, that must mean you're doing something wrong, according to a lot of religions. If your life is really good, you must be doing something right. And the gospel of Jesus actually kind of turns that on its head. For the Christians, sometimes a blessing flows like an unexpected river out of suffering. And sometimes the blessings will not be fully realized in this life at all. Because as a Christian, my hope does not rest in this life. It rests in life eternal with God. 
Ephesians 1.3 tells us that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen? That is your reality. It's not fully realized, but that is what you've got. If you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, every spiritual blessing in Christ. But Jesus was also honest with his disciples. He's like, listen, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. He says, in fact, the time is coming when everyone who kills you will think he's offering a sacrifice to God. That's what he tells his men. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How much time and energy we put into not being uncomfortable Yet these are the words of Christ and the apostles. And this suffering is often inflicted not by people far off, but by people close. Paul says to the Thessalonian church that they were, being, they were suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. Sometimes it's almost easier to think about suffering from Christ from some stranger out there, some radical out there. But when it comes close, when the suffering that you're experiencing is from a friend or from a classmate or a workmate or a neighbor or a family member, that hurts more. But that's the common experience. Paul encourages these believers and us by extension that in their suffering, they're in good company. They and we along with them are experiencing solidarity with other persecuted Christians around the world and throughout time, with the prophets of old who many were martyred as they carried the message of God, and ultimately with Jesus himself. The one of whom the Apostle John said came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And not only did his own not receive him, his own killed him. But God is in the business of taking what man intended for evil and turning it for good. Because that evil is what saved my soul. That evil of Jesus being nailed to the cross is what paid my price for my sins and has reconciled me to the living God. And if you suffer in the name of Jesus, the same is true. He will, he's in the business of taking what man intended for evil and ultimately turning it for good, for bringing what seemed like death, bring in resurrection, right? But three days later. The gospel is just not another misguided philosophy of man. It is the word of God. It is still the hope of the world. It's the hope for your neighbors. It's the hope for your workmates. It's the hope for your Uncle Joe. Sorry, Joe. I always use Joe. 
As 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the only message that when received has the power to really transform my life. Not just a few behavior modifications, not just a few uh, changes of bad habits, but to change me totally into a new creation from the inside out. And to change not just my present, but to change my forever. No other message can do that. If the Bible's painfully honest, to receive it will mean, at different levels, in the short term, some suffering. For the name and cause of Christ, though like many other Christians across the world have, as I said, you have not yet persist, resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. And I pray that God's grace is sufficient and evident, if that is ever the case for us, or for our children, or for our children's children, that we would live up to the example of our persecuted brothers around the world and to Christ himself. I'm going to close just with a couple of verses, and then I'll invite John up. Uh, Dave, I'm sorry, I'll invite Dave up. If you're, if you're presently suffering at any level for the name of Christ, be encouraged by Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind, other kind of criminal, or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But then Jesus says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Amen. Dave.